5. We left Revelation last week at the end of chapter 4. And if you remember, we exited chapter 4 and John has cries of holy, holy, holy ringing in his ears. He's taking in this grand throne room of heaven and God himself sitting on the throne in splendor and the rainbow and the sea of glass and the, and the elders and the beasts and all these things that are happening. And now we enter into chapter five, same throne room, same episode really, but there is a dynamic shift. And now all of a sudden in chapter five, this crisis occurs. And John begins to cry and not tears of joy, tears of sorrow. And I want you to understand what's happening here. Let's begin to read it together. Verse number one. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. And I don't know why my brain works this way, but that just jumped out to me, this strong angel. I picture this Goliath of an angel, like if the Hulk and an angel had a baby, this, it must be this angel, right? And I don't know if there's weak angels, like if there's a certain group of angels that John's, John's like, you need to hit the gym, boys, you know, but this angel is strong. But nevertheless, it's a strong angel. And he says, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So imagine if you jumped on Google today and you did a Google search and it said literally no results found. Nothing sponsored, no, no hints, no suggestions, just a blank page, no results found. What they're doing is they're looking for some man that is worthy to open this book that is in the right hand of God the Father, and there's no results found. He says, we looked in heaven, at like the, the saints, we looked in the earth, we looked under the earth in hell, we looked everywhere, there is no one worthy to open this book. Verse number four and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open the book and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now, I must confess, I, I always wondered, I knew this text, I knew this passage, but I've always felt like it was a bit of an overreaction. I always felt like, John, I think you're just a little too emotional right now, buddy. Like, I can understand you're in heaven, you're taking it in, there's all this glory. Then there's this super interesting like scroll or book that's sealed seven times and curiosity gets the better of you. You wanna look inside, I'd wanna know what's in that. And I would be disappointed if we couldn't open it up and know what was in there. But to be crestfallen, like to be weeping, it at first glance always felt like this is too strong of a reaction, but understand what's happening here. It wasn't uncommon in the first century for there to be a book or a scroll that was sealed seven times, but it wasn't highly usual because if you sealed a book seven times, it always indicated that this was a document of legal significance. And it varied on what that was, but it would be something like the will of a king or perhaps the deed to a large possession of land, something like that. And we'll actually find out what this, what this is as we enter into chapter six, seven, and eight. And it is in fact, 
the, the title deed to the earth to own and to be the caretaker and steward of the earth and the will of God that will be executed upon the earth. It is in fact the will of a king and the title deed to earth. Now, John doesn't know this at the moment, but he at least knows this is something of legal weight and this is in the right hand of God, which is the the hand of authority and power. So it's a little bit more than curiosity, but there's a, a high degree of significance. I would put it this way. Let's say that you had an aunt who was an aristocrat. And by aristocrat, I mean like money, money, like billions. And you knew that upon her death, her will was going to distribute all of her resources and assets exclusively to her family. She didn't name a church. She didn't name a charity. She didn't name anyone outside of the family. It was exclusively going to be divided evenly amongst all of her living relatives. And you knew you, this, we have a big family, but we're not that big. Like, this is going to be amazing. And you're not wishing her ill, obviously, but she does, in fact, die. And the will comes, but she had stipulations for her will that she needed one person to be the executor. And she didn't name the executor, but she named stipulations for the executor. And I don't know what they would be. Let's make them up. Let's say that she named these stipulations that were extreme. That was, you had to have at least four children, and traveled to every continent on the planet and been at least the CEO of a company that grossed at least $100 million in a year and, and, and. And as the family got together and realized that the stipulations were to, to execute this will, you had to meet these qualifications and you looked around at yourself and then you looked at your siblings and then you looked at your mom, your dad, and your uncles and your aunts and you realized, ain't hey, none of us meeting these qualifications. So then you went on a search for a year and you said, I don't care who it is. I'll find a third cousin. I'll find a fifth cousin. I'll find a 15th cousin. I just got to find somebody in our family tree who's living that can meet the qualifications and search as you may, you could find no one who could execute that will. And all of a sudden it dawned on you and it hit you like like a load of bricks that nobody in your family could access the resources or the will because none of you were worthy. Now, I dare say you may shed a few tears over that. That would be a bummer, would it not? And this is, that, that's a, it's actually a downgrade to what's happening in this moment, but that's a window into what's happening. That is dawning on John that no one can get into this or have access to this. And he is emotionally affected by this, that who's worthy? Who is worthy to receive the power and the riches and the authority and the possessions of God? Who's worthy to walk up to the throne of God and to snatch a book out of his hand and say, that one's mine, I got it. And John says, we looked and it wasn't me and it wasn't the elders and it wasn't wasn't anybody. And he cries. But then verse number five It takes a turn and you begin to learn one of the primary lessons from Revelation 5, that Jesus is exclusively worthy. Verse number five, one of the elders said unto me, weep not, John, wipe your tears away, buddy. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
He hath prevailed, he hath conquered, he hath been victorious to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So all of a sudden, the mood shifts as John hears there is one man, the God man, the Lord Jesus, who is worthy to come and to receive the power and the riches and the authority and the will of God. And he learns not only is Jesus worthy, but Jesus is the only one that's worthy. This is why it's important that when we talk about salvation, we make it clear that Jesus is the only name whereby you can be saved. That you can look at Muhammad and you can look at Joseph Smith and you can look at Confucius and you can look at Buddha and none of them are worthy to open the book and none of them have a name whereby you might be saved and none of them have a name that's given above all names whereby every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the only name. Jesus is the one who is exclusively worthy and the Bible declares this boldly, consistently, without apology, that Jesus is the only one. And that's this moment in heaven. But it continues to unfold, and it's not just that he's exclusively worthy, but it starts to tell you that he is exceptionally worthy. It doesn't just say, Jesus is worthy. You should know why. Moving on, it'll tell you why he's the worthy one. And here's what it says. It says in verse number five, that he is the predicted Messiah. Verse number five, it says, look, here's the one who's worthy. The line of the tribe of Judah, phrase number one. The root of David, phrase number two. What's that mean? These are phrases that are packed with significance from the Old Testament. Lion of the tribe of Judah refers back to Genesis chapter number 48, where Jacob blesses his sons, Judah being one of them. His sons would, would make up the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel. And he tells Judah, that Judah, you're going to be like a lion and you're going to take your enemies by the neck and it's from you that the royalty will come. And then it goes even further in Isaiah and it goes not just from the tribe of Judah, but it goes from the tribe to the family. And Isaiah says in chapter number 11 that from the house of Jesse, who's the father of David, from the house of David would be from their root system on their family tree is a branch that's going to come out and that branch will in fact be the prophesied Messiah. And what it's trying to say is that Jesus was the, the predicted Messiah, he is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. We'll, we'll sing a song next week about Revelation 5 and we'll, and we'll use these exact words in that, in that song and in these lyrics that he's David's root. He's the lamb that was slain. He's the line of the tribe of Judah because these are the words that are used to describe why he's worthy. This actually makes sense of the gospels. If you pick up, say, Matthew and you begin to read it, you may think, man, it's kind of a boring intro to the book to be like, he begat, he, he begat him, he begat him. You know, this genealogy is how you start the book. That's not boring at all. What Matthew's trying to tell you is that Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the root of David. What was predicted about the Messiah is true that he came from there. But then John goes to great lengths to tell you he's not just this predicted Messiah, but he's a resurrected savior. Look at verse number six. It's so gorgeous. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood 
a lamb as it had been slain. Now, how intriguing, first of all, that here John is looking everywhere. They're doing this heavenly search for who's worthy. And the lamb that was slain is right in the midst. It doesn't say that the lamb comes from stage right. He was back in the green room and decided to come onto the platform finally. And everyone's like, where have you been? But he was right there in the midst. He was right in the middle of them the whole time. And whether John was so enamored by the throne, as you could imagine, and seen all the splendor, maybe his head was on a swivel, but he, he missed this, which is at least a hint of what can happen in Revelation, that it is very possible to see all of these things happening and to miss the focal point of Revelation, which is Jesus. You don't want to approach the book in such a way that you try to figure out the symbolism and you take out your timeline and you try to put the pieces of the puzzle together and you, and you answer all of these questions, but you miss the forest for the trees and you miss Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus and revelation singular, not plural. Revelation of one, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is in the midst. And how, how is he described? The lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb with his throat cut, right? The one that raises up is a lamb as if it had been slain. He's living. He's, he's not coming up if he's not alive. He's not killed over dead, but it's as if he had been slain. There are, there are some sort of visible marks and manifestation of the pain and the suffering that this lamb had been through. Think story of Thomas, post-resurrection, that the living, glorified Jesus comes to Thomas, but shows him the wounds in his hands and in his side. And here is the lamb that had been slain. And the progression of a lamb being slain in the Bible is so intriguing. You have early on in Genesis, this lamb on behalf of the sins of individuals, Adam, Eve. You'll get to Exodus and you'll have a lamb that is slain, the Passover lamb on behalf of a family. You'll get later in the Pentateuch and you'll find that there's a lamb that is slain on behalf of the nation on the day of atonement. And then you'll get to the gospels and you'll find that Jesus is declared to be the lamb of God that takes away the sins, not just of the individual or of the family of the nation, but the sins of the world. And it is this lamb, this one, this crucified and resurrected, it's the gospel. A lamb that is slain, he's risen again. And it says this, the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now I can't tell you with 100% certainty what that symbolism means, but I can tell you with a high degree of probability that it is symbolic, likely, and that it probably is symbolic for the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence of the Lord. Seven being a number of perfection or completion, horns equaling power, eyes equaling seeing, the spirits that are going everywhere in the earth being the presence everywhere, that there is this complete power, complete visibility, complete presence is what it's trying to communicate. That It's trying to say that there's this omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one, and it's not talking about the Father in this moment, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. This lamb that was slain in verse number seven, he came and he, he, took, he snatched the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. I don't think he did it in a disrespectful way, but this is a moment 
where someone is worthy to get this book. And we'll see in chapters six and seven and eight that he's gonna open these seals one by one and we're gonna see what's in this book. But he takes it and look at verse number eight, what happens in this moment. The place erupts. It's not just was sorrowful and now the mood has shifted to a little better. They go crazy. Look at verse number eight. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and 20 elders, they fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and you've redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Get the picture? You are worthy and they burst in praise. Why? Because you're the predicted Messiah. Why? Because you are the resurrected Savior. Because you were slain and you're alive. Because you've redeemed us. Because you've saved us by your blood. All of this is the gospel. Dead and now alive with the intention to redeem to you a people from every kindred and tribe, not just a European gospel or an American gospel or an African gospel, not monochromatic at all, but to redeem people from everywhere, anyone who will put their faith in you to redeem this and to redeem them from their sins, but to God. That's the gospel. And they start to sing it and, and scream it and begin to exclaim it profoundly that this is the worthy one, the Lord Jesus. He is exceptionally worthy. He's the only one that's predicted like that. He's the only one who saves us. But it gets better. Like it doesn't stop there. It keeps building. And it says, in verse 11 through 14, that he's exceedingly worthy. And John begins now to what at first glance would look like he's pressing the bounds of human language. You would almost think he's speaking in hyperbole, but he's not. And here's what he says, verse 11. And I beheld, and now I hear the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. 10K times 10K is 100 million. Thousands of thousands is at least 4 million. It's like there's 100 million and there's a cherry on top with another 4 million. And is he literally saying there's only 104 million, not 104 million and one? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that this is like an infinite number. You have never seen a choir like this. It is, it's, it's like 100 million. It's crazy. All of this heavenly host begin to say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I love that song, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's this idea of you receive the blessing. Verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as they're in the sea, all that are in them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Get it? 
There's all this praise from the elders and from the beasts, and then there's a hundred million and the angels jump in, and then it's not just the heavenly host, but all the creation begins to jump in, and the zebras and the whales and the lizards and the eagles, and they all begin to, in one big voice, praise not just the Father, but the Son, and to say that you are worthy. That's a moment. That's something we will enjoy one day. That's the stuff that thousands and thousands of songs have have been written about that we try to sing. There are phrases from this text that are incorporated into so many of our hymns and anthems to try to be able to tell God and to tell Jesus that he is worthy. And if you notice, they do distinguish between him that sits on the throne and the lamb, but they don't distinguish in the full-throated praise or the full-hearted praise that the father is worshiped just like the son and the son is worshiped just like the father. And if that doesn't scream co-equal and co-eternal at the deity of Jesus, I don't know what does. That the phraseology from chapter four that they're exclaiming to the father, much of it is pulled and now it's used to proclaim to the son and they're saying that you are the only one that's worthy. As all of heaven and all of creation join in in verse 14, it even builds exceedingly bigger. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and they worshiped him that liveth, listen to this, forever and ever. Jesus you are exceedingly worthy, worthy of a hundred million to praise you, worthy of all creation to praise you, worthy of worship forever and ever. You are the one. This is the creme de la creme of worship. This is the most amazing passage of scripture that we could pull from anywhere to be able to see what does it look like to worship our God from our hearts. And I want, I want you to get the big truth. I don't want to be sidetracked by little ancillary things. I want you to get the big truth. The truth is that Jesus is exclusively worthy and Jesus is exceptionally worthy. Jesus is the one that is even everlastingly worthy. Jesus is the only one. That's the big truth. But I want to marry this hopefully to your practical life and not just tell you, go worship Jesus. That, that'd be a good thing for me to say but I wanna to try to help you with how. How might you worship Jesus? Because may his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May, may this be a template for us today. May it not just be, oh, that's one day, but not today. May this be something that serves us well. And I want you to see the elements of worship that are in chapters four and chapters five. I'm not gonna reread the whole text, but I wanna, I wanna pull from, each, from different verses. And I want you to see at least eight different elements of worship that are in this text. Now worship, to define it, is simply an expression of reverence and adoration to God. It is when you, in some way, shape, or form, are able to express to the Father, to the Son, even to the Spirit, that I revere you and I adore you. But those expressions can take many shapes. And you see at least eight different shapes that help 
worship in this text. And I want you to survey these with me quickly. And I want you to ask yourself, it may be that you find that there's two of them that you're great at. Like I do that all the time and I worship in that way. But there may be another two that are like, yeah, that's on the back burner for me. And I don't use those often. Or it may be that one week you want to take half of them and you want to say, I really want to hone in on these four this week. But then next week I want to hone in on these four and really do these well. But hopefully this will help you worship the Lord Jesus better. Here's what you find. You find, first of all, there's praise. Verse number eight of chapter four tells us that the beasts are there and they are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. What is praise? Praise is the positive proclamation of the goodness and character of God. And even praise can kind of take a few different forms. You can praise God to him with like words of affirmation and just telling him that you admire his faithfulness and you admire his mercy and you admire his grace. You can praise to God. You can praise God to other people and talk about the goodness and faithfulness and mercy and grace of God in your life. You can praise God to the nations who don't know the Lord Jesus and proclaim his goodness and character to them all of them would be this exclamation, this proclamation of the goodness and character of God. But these, these beasts are proclaiming that. You're holy. You're almighty. You are forever. You're everlasting. Was, is, is to come. That's what they're doing. They're praising God. And that is an avenue for us to worship the Lord. Worship is the genus Praise is one of the species that are under that. Here's another species or avenue or vehicle for praise is thanksgiving. Verse number nine, the next verse tells you that the beasts give thanks to him that sits on the throne. And one of the ways to worship God is to say, God, thank you. I love that Matt did that this morning. I didn't know he was gonna do that. He didn't, he didn't tell me. I just went to the first service and found out just like you that, oh, we're gonna do this. We're gonna take 30 seconds. We're gonna stop. And we're gonna be quiet and still. And we're just gonna say thank you to God. And we're gonna follow up that gratitude by singing 10,000 reasons. And the, and the real focal point of that song was us praising and thanking him. You're rich in love. You're slow to anger. Your name is great. Your heart is kind. For all of your goodness, I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. I don't know if you were paying attention to those words, but what are those words? Those words are words of worship. Third is the giving of our possessions. Verse number 10 tells us that the redeemed fall down and they begin to throw their golden crowns, chapter four, to the foot of the throne and begin to give of what's valuable to them. Is generosity an expression of worship? supposed to be. No, it's not always, but it's supposed to be. And I was, I was smitten by this as I studied last week and as I studied this week, that my wife and I are to the point to where we have a, a pattern of generosity that is habitual for us. And we have a pattern of generosity that I would say is significant for us. Our largest expense, if you want to call it that, but our largest uh, outflow on a monthly basis is our generosity to the Lord through his local church. It's bigger than our grocery budget. It's bigger than our mortgage. It's, it's our biggest ex expense. I don't think it's 
Expense is a bad word, but if you want to think of it in budgetary terms, that's us. We give regularly. We give significantly. But do I always give with a heart of worship? Sometimes not. Sometimes it's just because it's my pattern or I'm commanded to, or perhaps I want God to pour me out a blessing. But the best way to give your possessions of value, whether it be a golden crown or a check or stock or a piece of land or anything, the best way to give is out of worship, is out of reverence and adoration and a heart of love to God. This is why it's so important when Corinthians tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And we oftentimes emphasize the cheerful, don't be grumpy, be cheerful. But we underemphasize sometimes God loves. Think about that. When you give cheerfully, when there is joyful generosity, you can hear the God of heaven saying, I love it when you do that. And our response should be, that's why I do it, because I love you and I want to do what you love. Doesn't it make sense? Don't you do things for the ones that you love that sometimes you don't even love them, but you do them, right? We go places with our kids. Do I want to go to a trampoline park? No, I've already had knee surgery. I don't need it again. <laughs> but my kids love it, so we'll go to one tomorrow. Like I do that out of, I love you, so I want to do what you love, Right? When we understand that God loves joyful generosity, if you love that and I love you, then out of worship I give. Out of worship I cast my golden crowns, as it were. And may we understand, I don't, I don't know how you give. Last night I did my giving. I do it almost exclusively online. Occasionally I'll, I'll drop a check in, but I do most of mine online. But whether you're online or whether you text to give or whether you put something in the box that's out there, I don't, I don't care. When you do it though, do it out of worship. Do it as a way to say, God, I adore you and I revere you and I want to invest in your name and in your work and in your church. This is for you. That's the way to give. That's the way to give. It's not just their expression of generosity, but you find in chapter number five, you start to get to confession. What is this whole, nobody's worthy. I'm not worthy. They're not worthy. It's confession. It's this moment where John is realizing the sinfulness of humanity and how dilapidated we often are. And he is saying a humble, tough truth. I'm not worthy. You know what one of the biggest enemies to true worship is? It's pride. It gets in the way. You know what one of the best antidotes to pride is? Confession. That will boost your hum humility and lessen your pride in a heartbeat. And haven't we all been there where a week went by and we confessed no sin? We had no moments where we recognized the godness of God and the sinfulness of man and not just man, but the sinfulness of our own heart. And we allowed that to, to help us to get that paradigm right of who he is and who we are. Confession is so helpful when it comes to worship. But not just confession, you find that they start to get onto music and singing. And I didn't break these down separately, although I could have, but you have the instruments and the harps 
Then you have, they start to sing this new song and they begin to proclaim that the lamb is worthy. What's happening? They're worshiping. Hear me well on this. Worship is not less than the song service at church, but it is more than the song service at church. This, this is one of the avenues when we get together and we sing corporately, it's one of the avenues, but not the only one. But it is one where we sing. I read an article this week from Matt Merker and he was talking about how every ministry of a church should be aimed at growth and godliness for the people of the church. And I think that's so true. If you have any ministry and it doesn't produce growth and godliness for your congregants, then it's a waste of time. And that's true of our music ministry, that the time spent in practicing the instruments and the time spent in rehearsing for a choir and the, and, the, and the vocals and all of the music that comes together, that is supposed to be about growth and godliness, which is why Colossians will tell us that we do sing with grace in our hearts and we do sing to the Lord. It ultimately goes to him, but it tells us that when we sing, we teach and we admonish each other. There's a teaching and discipleship aspect and a growth and godliness aspect to when we sing that we don't want to miss. It's part of our worship. It's part of our growth even. It's interesting to me that they sing a new song here. Now, it's the, it's the same story, but a new song, right? This is actually part of the song, I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story uh, when in themes of glory, I sing a new, new song. It'll be the old, old story that I have loved so long. New song, same story. Jesus and the gospel, right? And they're singing this new song. You find here in a few chapters that they sing another new song in heaven. Then you'll find that they sing the song of Moses, which is the oldest song lyrically that we have. And this blend of really old, classic stood the test of time songs and new songs blending together, which is what we try to do here at church, to have a mighty fortress is our God, which is hundreds of years old, and to have 10,000 reasons, which is a couple decades old, but to put those together and to say we need this. And a new song is important. I had just this week uh, one of our teenagers I was here on Wednesday night and I was doing some things early and they were in the cafeteria uh, playing the piano. They were with Matt Davis and they were doing some singing. I said, what are you singing? And he said, I'm singing a song that I wrote. A new song that was written. I don't know if it was that week or that month, but a new song that, that I wrote to express my love for the Lord and, and our faith. And I thought, how beautiful is that? It's a, it's a good thing when young people, when a teenager at Harvest wants to write a new song for God, but they sing. There are three questions I ask myself about our congregational singing almost every Sunday. It's the same question three ways. Did we sing the truth? Did what we sing drip with theology? Did we reinforce the, the mega themes of God's word? Did we transfer truth and discipleship through the songs that we sing? I don't want to sing fluff. I don't want to sing just some, that could be to my girlfriend, but it could be to Jesus. I want to sing the truth. But then I ask myself, did we sing the truth? Not just did someone else sing the truth or did we talk the truth, but did we sing it? Did we stand here with scowls on our face like someone stole our lunch money? Or did we sing, right? But then I ask myself, did we sing the truth? 
Not just did the choir sing the truth or did Casey sing the truth, and I'm thankful that they did. But did we, the, the mainstay of our singing is, is congregational singing, is us singing together. Did we make it important? Did we participate in the dress rehearsal for heaven? Did we sing the truth? That's, that's really simple, but that's how I think about what we do for 10 to 20 minutes every single Sunday. Did we do that? I think we did this morning, best I can tell, but I love it when we do that, singing. You also find it's not just singing that they have and music that they have, but you find that they have uh, prayer. Verse number eight, and time is escaping me. The prayers of the saints are offered in these golden vials that are these, this odor, this incense that is there in heaven. You wanna give your prayer life an upgrade? Think about it this way. My prayers can and will be sweet-smelling odor of incense in the nostrils of God one day. That makes prayer a bit more of an expression of worship to me. That those prayers will be offered as some sort of incense or, or sacrifice, as it were, there that's pleasing to God. Then you find, number eight, the exposition of truth. And I could spend all day on this, but they sang the truth, they spoke the truth, they recite the truth. There is this exposition of truth that is happening amidst the worship that is, you are the line of the tribe of Judah and you are the root of David and you are the lamb that was slain and you have redeemed us unto God. And there is all this truth, you are almighty and you are holy that is jam packed into what they do. And what you find is that real worship explodes off of truth. The truth is the tea and worship is the ball perhaps and it comes off of that which is why a sermon is part even of our worship together for us to be able to have the truth and use those truths to take and to exclaim and proclaim and praise and sing to God. If you struggle with what to praise this week or what to uh, sing this week, I encourage you, just rip it straight from chapters four and five. Just take their words and praise those. God, you are almighty. You was. You are. You are to come. You're everlasting, God. Just take their words and use them and praise him with it. Worship him with that. Now, it could be in your own personal private time that you really emphasize three out of the eight tomorrow. It could be that today, you came in and you sang and you really tried to worship from the heart and you're gonna give in just a moment, you're gonna give from the heart and you'll praise. It may not be that all these happen in every single moment, but understand these are at least eight ways for us to worship Jesus and we should be worshiping Jesus. I'll leave you with this. Reader's Digest many years ago had an article where they argued that in order to live a fulfilled life, and don't we seem to be searching for fulfillment these days in our culture? And we're coming up empty-handed left and right. They argued that what you needed to be fulfilled was three things. You needed some other things to survive, shelter, food, clothes, but to be fulfilled, you needed three things. Someone to love, something to hope in, and something to do, some sort of purpose. And I would broadly agree with Reader's Digest but what they did not say 
was that the solution to all three of those is found in one person, the Lord Jesus. He's the one that we love. He's the one that we hope in. If you're looking for something to do, worship him. It'll be your future. Why not make it your today? Why not love and hope in and worship the Lord Jesus? That's what we will be about. And I dare say it's what we should be about.